This podcast is brought to you by Bruner Communications, your best resource for public speaking, presentation, and storytelling skills. Visit lizbruner.com and take your skills to the next level. What do a hotel heiress and an organic chicken company have in common? One woman, and she is my guest today. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Live Your Best Life with Liz Bruner. I'm Liz, and my guest today is living one of the most fascinating lives, and I can't wait for you to get to know her. She is a businesswoman, an award-winning author of 27 books, a speaker, and an anti-human trafficking advocate who recently returned from Ukraine. Mitzi Perdue, welcome to my podcast. Well, sure, joy being on your podcast. And I'm dazzled by how many countries you're in. Remind me how many countries you're in? More than 140 countries. Awesome. Thank you. I think it's pretty exciting, too. But this show is about you today. And your late father co-founded the Sheridan Hotel chain. Your late husband, Frank Perdue, built the largest producer of organic chicken in the world. There are so many experiences wrapped up in this amazing life. And you chose to dedicate your life to many public causes. And you recently were invited to Ukraine as a guest of the general of the Kiev Regional Police. And you spent five days there. How did that come about? You mentioned that I'm an anti-human trafficking advocate. Well, I had written an article for Psychology Today about human trafficking in Ukraine. And by just the most amazing coincidence, it reached General Andrei Nebitov in Ukraine, whose chief of police has 6,000 people under him for the Kyiv region. And he had happened to write his master's thesis on human trafficking. So just an article that I wrote sitting here in Salisbury, Maryland, reached Ukraine. And, you know, like 10 days later, I'm in Ukraine because he invited me to come and see for myself what I was writing about. And you wrote about the fact that it's as if there wasn't enough to deal with with the war going on. You say that human trafficking there is at an all-time high. This is so sad, but human traffickers, you know, they prey on the vulnerable. And if you're a woman, maybe you've got a little eight-year-old girl, and your house has been bombed, so it's rubble, your husband is off fighting at the front, and you want to escape to safety in Poland, you cross the border, there's highly likely to be a human trafficker there waiting for you. And he's going to promise you, oh, I can get you a job. I'll get you a safe place to sleep tonight. We'll take care of your little girl. And then she's never heard from again because she's in the hands of a trafficker. You've written a number of articles about your trip. And one of the things that I read about was that Russia has apparently abducted more than 200,000 Ukrainian children, taking them to Russia. What is their goal in doing this? They have a couple of goals. I think probably the biggest is Russia itself is facing an absolutely catastrophic decline in population. You want to keep your country to be healthy. You'd like to have a somewhat stable population because you need younger people like paying taxes and taking care of the retirees. Russia doesn't have that. A typical woman throughout the world needs to give birth to 2.1 children on average. Uh, to keep the population uh, steady. Russia, it's 0.7. You know, the average woman is not replacing the population, so they have an absolutely catastrophic decline in population. And stealing Ukrainian children mm. is part of their plan to repopulate. Can you imagine how demoralizing it is for the Ukrainians? Because 
<laughs> they want their population to grow also. And you take 200,000 kids away. I mean, it's just so evil. Mm. Catastrophic. And one of the things that you also have talked about is that when Russia first invaded Ukraine, one of their first targets was law enforcement. Why? Well, it was part of a psychological operation. Mm. And interestingly, totalitarian countries, when they're trying to take over a country, almost one of the first things that they do is to attack the police. Mm -hmm. Because I think the average person probably thinks mainly of police as you know, dealing with criminals. But no, the police, they're there to protect and serve, and they provide so many other functions, like safety. They respond to calls of, for example, domestic violence or combating human trafficking. When the Russians attacked Ukrainian police, they bombed the police stations. Mm. They destroyed the communications they made off with the police cars or else destroyed them. I have to add something else that the, that the Russians did. They emptied the prisons with the result that the Ukrainian people felt doubly vulnerable because you know, they're not only being invaded from the outside, but the murderers, the thieves, the looters, the rapists, they're all running free too. And it's just so demoralizing. And the Russians did it on purpose. Mm. Lots going on over there. We, we send our thoughts and prayers that direction, certainly. Over the course of your career as a syndicated columnist for 22 years, you've written more than 1,800 newspaper and magazine articles. You've authored 27 books. One of them I recently read was your story, Growing Up as a Hotel Heiress, and it's entitled, I Didn't Bargain for This. In it, you say you feel kind of funny, maybe even a little off if a day goes by that you're not writing. And all of that inspiration for you to be a writer started very, very young, first grade. Why are you so compelled to write? Actually, my whole family is writers. My family of origin goes back to 1840 as a family business. And one of the requirements for you know, being a Henderson is by age 60, you're supposed to write your autobiography. <laughs> I know that that wouldn't work for, for most families, but for ours, it does. And we have shelves and shelves and shelves of autobiographies. Wow. And it's just the coolest thing in the world to read what great, great, great grandmother was thinking of and how she had migraines. And just, you know, it's, it's so cool to, to sort of be in touch with your ancestors, but they all were comfortable writing. What a wonderful history you have to be able to fall back on. Now, the other thing that I found so interesting in your book, there were so many things, but besides writing, you were quite the math prowess in school, but you got reprimanded for doing so well. And you've even said that knowing what you know today, that you would have maybe followed that path. Do you think times have changed enough for young girls? Well, actually, uh, congratulations if, if you're a young person, because it seems to me that in general, young women are encouraged to go into STEM you know, science, technology, engineering, and math. Yeah, because now, now they're treasured. But back when I was growing up, people are listening to us and can't see me, so they wouldn't know, I hope for my voice, that I'm 81 years old. But that meant that I was growing up in the 1940s. I think that I had a real bent towards math. It came easy, and I did well at it. I was discouraged by, by everybody around me, because if I'd like be a couple of years ahead of myself <laughs> uh, in, in the math problems. Let's say I was showing off. Don't do that. And so I wasn't winning any points for being good at math. Uh, it was just viewed as showing off. And 
well, yes, I am given to showing up. But <laughs> We're going to get to that also. That <laughs> yeah, let, let's just, uh, we won't deal with the showing off part. <laughs> but it is true that, that something that I think today would have been celebrated back then was kind of looked down on for a girl, at least. Yeah. Let's talk about you growing up, because you grew up in Massachusetts and in New Hampshire. Your mother was acknowledged as the grand dame of Boston society until her death, but she was not above shoveling coal. Your father spoke five languages, and you called him by his first name, Ernie. Your parents felt it was important that you go to public school, shuck out the barn, and yes, even shovel coal. What did that teach you? Well, I'm so grateful because a lot of people in my economic background, filthy, stinking, rich, in other words, I think live in something of a bubble. I treasure it that my family did, or my parents anyway, did everything that they could to have their kids not live in the bubble. And that meant, for example, going to public school. So yes. growing up, I had friends who were debutantes, but I also had close friends who I still love, who like one of them, her father was a dairy farmer. Another, it's girlfriend. Her mother worked behind the jewelry counter in Gilcrests. To me, I'm just so grateful to them that I didn't only associate with people who I call live in the bubble. What I also think is so interesting about that is because your maiden name was Henderson, and yet your father, who co-founded the Sheridan Hotel chain, choose to stay with that name in part because it was on a sign. <laughs> he didn't want to want to waste the money on a sign, but he also didn't feel it was appropriate to call it Henderson for that mere fact of what you were calling of not living in that bubble. Yeah, the Sheraton Hotels, it got his name because there was what was a fortune back in the early 1930s. The third hotel that he ever bought had a $10,000 Sheraton neon sign and he was much too much of a, a thrifty New England Yankee to tear down a $10,000 sum. <laughs> I love that story. He wanted to have the same name for advertising purposes. Here's another lesson that I got from my father, and that is I don't think he was very egotistical because he could have put his name on the company. And he told me this, so you know, I have it from the horse's mouth. He didn't feel that Henderson had a ring to it. It wasn't, as to use his words, euphonious. But he felt that Sheraton did have a ring to it. So imagine being self-effacing enough to not name your company after yourself. Right. He was also an advocate of human rights and at one time was the president of the Boston Chamber of Commerce. And he suggested that the mannequins in the store windows needed to reflect diversity. And he had a plan for every one of them on one single day to all be changed. Amazing to have had that happen. Yeah, this is among the things I'm just beyond measure proud of, because we're talking the 1950s. Yes. And by the way, I think this was like maybe a decade before the civil rights movement really took off. He was kind of a pioneer, but his view was that it just didn't make sense if the population of Boston was 10% African American, not to have them represented in the mannequins in the stores. There was a degree of racism back then that I don't think you'd even recognize today. Yeah, yeah. Any store that would put 10% of the mannequins be African-American or a person of color, they risked just losing all sorts of customers by prejudiced people saying, ooh, awful, why are you doing that? So father's inspiration was if every store in Boston at the same time on a given day, suddenly 10% of the mannequins would be African-American he thought that it would just be the right thing to do. 
And how clever of him to figure that out. It's brilliant, actually. With degrees from Harvard and George Washington University, there were a few stops before you became a columnist, and you raised two sons as a single mom. You owned and managed rice farms and vineyards in Northern California for a time. You became the president of the oldest and largest American farm women's organization. And, if I might add, you were also a TV and radio host at one point in time. And you also had the opportunity to serve as a UN delegate to the International Conferences on Women in Nairobi. Oh, my goodness. That is quite the list, Mitzi. Well, thank you. (laughs) And then let's talk about Frank Perdue entering your life. Almost love at first sight. And you say that he really was the love of your life. And when I was reading your book, you talk about the fact that cumulatively, you guys got married after I think something like 36 hours, in-person hours, (laughs) but it was over a period of time. Share with us what he meant to you. Well, he absolutely was the love of my life. And okay, I can't say love at first sight, but love in the first five minutes. There you go. Well, we met at a party where he arrived late and I had to leave early. So we only overlapped by 10 minutes. In the first five minutes, we're talking about how we just weren't available, how we would never marry again, how marriage was an institution designed to make people miserable. And you know, <laughs> and we were agreeing on this so enthusiastically that somehow something switched. And we're agreeing on the fact that we would never remarry. But that was a shame because you know life can be lonely alone. We agreed that we would never marry again because we'd never trust anybody again. Then Frank looked down at me. He was tall, by the way. He was over six feet. And I'm five foot six. He looked down and said, looking into my eyes, I believe I could trust you. And I looked up at him and I said, I believe I could trust you. And then we spent the next five minutes talking about what our marriage would be like. (laughs) In five minutes. (laughs) And you guys did go on to marry. You've written that Frank was a perfect blend of both your mother and your father. How so? Father was a businessman. He was a genuinely good man. But I would say that there was a toughness to him, which frankly, I I find attractive. Mother, on the other hand, she was a Southern belle. She was the perfect wife for a man in the hospitality industry. She had a great understanding of what makes people tick, how to make them feel important and good. I think they were a total case of opposites attract. You know, he was a Harvard graduate. He He was intellectual. He was tough. He was a businessman. And to have, you know, a kind of soft, cuddly Southern woman as his wife, together they made a whole. But then suddenly I come across a guy who has the best of both of them. (laughs) You know, I was a happy camper our, our entire 17 years. He gave you a precious, precious engagement ring, an emerald, which I would like for you to share with us about the story of that emerald, but also that you are putting it up for auction I can't believe you're going to get rid of that, but I guess it's going to go for a good cause. (laughs) It's the most precious possession that I own, both in in terms of dollars and in terms of emotion. The Atocha is a ship that sank in 1622. It had the largest amount of treasure of of any ship that's ever been recovered. In today's dollars, it carried $2 billion worth of Let's see, emeralds, silver, gold, pearls. I mean, it was a treasure ship. And Frank was one of the financial backers of it. And he gave 
his share, a lot of it to the Smithsonian, and then he gave enough to found a museum in Delaware. But he kept for himself one part that was you know, just really important. It was a very large, near-perfect emerald, probably meant for the Queen of Spain. When we got engaged, after I'd known him 36 hours, he gave me, no, actually it's less than that. Uh, no, five hours, sorry, let's be accurate. <laughs> after I'd known him five hours, he gave me my engagement ring, the Atocha Emerald. I'm gonna guess that people might wonder, why would I give it away? And the answer is, Frank was the most philanthropic person I ever met. So I'm sure that he would agree with my decision to do the following. I mentioned that I visited Ukraine for five days and I fell in love with the people there. I mean, my goodness, the backbone, they're, they're up against the world's second largest army and they didn't give in. And I met so many people that I admired so much and the need was so great. I decided that one of the best things that I could do for them would be partly raising funds uh, to help with the civil society reconstituting itself, that funds for that would be really important. But also, I'm aware that giving away a historic emerald will also raise awareness of, of what Ukraine's going through, of the, the civil society part of it, what, what happens when the police break down. It's going to be auctioned December 7th. You know, people from around the world are welcome to bid on this historic emerald. Every penny of it will go to support humanitarian efforts in Ukraine. And I know that Frank would endorse this because, you know, that emerald, I don't know how many lives it could save, but I bet it's hundreds, mm. maybe thousands. We, we can't know. I think that he would, he would love that the emerald that he gave me will be going for that purpose. Mm. Beautiful story. You have been a witness, you've had the opportunity, I should say, to be a witness to two major family businesses, the Sheridan family chain from your father, and of course, with Frank Perdue, the chicken company. And of course, every family business has its own culture. Do you think that, does this culture come by design or does it come by default? Well, the answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes and yes, right? <laughs> yeah, how's that for a great big helpful answer? Yes. But to be more specific, Every family has a culture. I think an awful lot of them, it just comes about by accident. And by culture, I mean the way we do things. The ones that are design, those are the families that I think have the greatest chance of lasting because for a family to, to last, they've got to instill values that encourage lasting. And I would say one of the top of those is encourage stewardship. Because if you think that the family business is just about you getting money and the benefits from it, you're probably not going to invest in it and care for it and love it uh, and hand it on to the next generation in better shape than you got it. You have to, if you want a family business to last, encourage stewardship. And I'll give you concrete examples of that. Both the Hendersons and the Purdue's, we travel economy class because we're, we're not there to go spend the money. We're there to save it or to give it to charity, which brings me to the second point. I think every family business that lasts, and there's a lot of academic research behind what I'm about to say, the families that last to the third generation, they've almost all discovered the importance of philanthropy. Mm -hmm. That the family that gives back feels good about itself. It's not 100% selfish. It almost has to be that the motivation mm -hmm. is that you're there to help. That's just so good for the kids to realize that your purpose isn't to 
spend money right and left. Your purpose is to serve. Mm-hmm. And I think that's probably the backbone, if you will, of the most recent biography that you worked on, which is about Mark Victor Hansen, who was actually a guest on this show as well. And that book is entitled Relentless, Wisdom Behind the Incomparable Chicken Soup for the Soul. Can you give us a thumbnail sketch of what that book entails? Mark Victor Hansen, co-author of Chicken Soup for the Soul series, he's been a fantastic success in his life. One of his nicknames is Mentor to Millions. Half a billion people have bought books. So yeah, this, this is a giant of a man. But it occurred to me one day that I'm a writer, and actually he had written a biography I wrote of my late husband, and we were discussing it, and you know, he was saying that he liked it. And I said, Mark, has anybody ever written your biography? And he said, no. And I said, well. <laughs> well. <laughs> yeah, the result was the book Relentless. I interviewed more than 100 people to write it. I had a motive for writing it. I thought Mark's life itself is inspirational you know, for a hurting world to have an example of somebody who's just, you know, he's, he's a very human person. He's, you know, he went bankrupt. He had thoughts of suicide. He had a failed marriage. He certainly had his share of adversity, but he was so good of learning from things that went wrong and not giving up that he became crazy successful. Your parents were both fond of sharing what they called recipes for life. What's the best recipe you have learned during your life? I actually put a lot of thought into exactly that because I was once asked to address a group of like, I guess they were 13-year-olds about what success was. So I spent a whole day thinking about it and putting together everything that I've read and heard and thought, and I came up with the slogan, success is measured not by what you can get, but by what you can give. Beautifully said. If you'd like to learn more about Mitzi's amazing life and discover her many books as a master storyteller, simply go to MitziPerdue.com and we will have that in the show notes for you. Mitzi, I'm, I'm going to call you a poster child for what it means to lead a full life. Thank you so much for offering all you do to the world and for being my guest today. I really appreciate it. It's been sheer joy. Thank you. Hey, can we put in the show notes that if anybody wants to make a donation to help Ukraine, to text up UP to 55312. And I'd love to hear from people. Up 55312. We will put that in the show notes. And thanks to all of you for tuning in today. Please write a review and share this episode. Mitzi believes her purpose in life is to encourage people to be all that they can be. And that is what this show is all about too. May her story inspire you to live your best life. Until next time, be well. This podcast is brought to you in part by Fast Twitch Media, helping people tell their stories and giving them worldwide reach. The future is in the cloud and Fast Twitch Media can take you there. Be your best digital self. Check out fasttwitchmedia.space.